which Amos ministered. Uh, the people of the northern kingdom were in a season of actually considerable prosperity. Their economy was seemingly strong. Their army and their fortresses were not being tested by the surrounding nations. Life kind of seemed to have been moving along just fine for the northern kingdom. And then, and then Amos had to go and turn up and deliver his message. Uh, as we've studied his message to the people of the northern kingdom over the last several weeks, we've basically seen that he's been preaching to them nothing really but judgment. In his first sermon, in Amos chapters 1 and 2, Amos communicated to the people of Israel that they had become just like the nations surrounding them, wicked, just like the other nations, which made them worthy of God's judgment. In chapters 3 and 4, Amos, he pointed out Israel's guilt and her lack of repentance, pointing to specific sins which the nation of Israel had committed. In chapters 5 and 6, Amos offered a hymn of lament over the people of Israel. And he announced a series of woe oracles in which he decried Israel's iniquity and assured them of Jehovah's judgment. Well, in the passage that we're looking at today, Amos chapter 7, things actually get very personal. And the drama of Amos's prophecy continues to build. Things get personal in the sense that Amos tells us about the very visions that the Lord personally gave him concerning the future of Israel. These visions tell us why. Amos has been preaching these kind of fire and brimstone sermons against Israel. Things also get personal in the sense that the priest of the sanctuary of Bethel tells Amos to go away. In all of this, Amos is bold. And he responded to his rejection by boldly declaring the word of the Lord. So if I had to summarize this portion of God's word, Amos chapter 7, in one sentence, it would be this. Israel's refusal to hear and heed God's word results in removal from the land. Israel's refusal to hear and heed God's word results in removal from the land. Uh, this, is the drum this is the drum that the book of Amos has been kind of beating all along. And Amos chapter 7 is on beat with the rhythm of the book. We're going to study Amos 7 in two sections under two headings or two questions, really. Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? It's not just a Christmas tune. It's also a question for this sermon. Uh, and who will go? Just the question, who will go? Let's begin with our first point. Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? And this is where the Lord shows Amos a series of visions concerning the future of Israel. So as we consider this, read Amos chapter 7, verses 1 to 9 with me. Amos chapter 7, verses 1 to 9. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh, Lord God, please forgive. How, how can Jacob stand? He's so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire, and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. And then I said, Oh Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. 
Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now these verses, they actually mark something of a transition in the book of Amos. With the start of chapter 7, we move from a series of speeches to a series of visions. The rest of the book of Amos will essentially be taken up with these visions. Here in verses 1 to 9, we're given three of those visions. You'll probably notice a similar structure or way in which each of these visions is presented. Each vision begins with a statement from Amos. This is what the Lord God showed me. And then the vision goes on, either with or without explanation from the Lord. And the reason for that is some of the visions are so self-explanatory that the Lord doesn't need to say anything. Amos gets the picture. He sees what the Lord sees. Take, for example, the first vision in verses 1 to 3. This first vision is a vision concerning locusts. A massive swarm of locusts appears just as the vegetation is beginning to sprout in the spring. And this is cause for alarm. Because eating all of the growth, as he says in verse 1, would result in a massive food shortage in Israel. The people of Israel would starve as a result if this nightmare came true. Now there are just a couple more things that we need to notice about this vision. The first is that this vision is, is something that the Lord was intimately involved in. It's no accident that Amos mentions that the Lord was forming the locust. Did you notice that there in verse 1? Amos said, He, that's the Lord, He was forming the locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. Amos recognized the Lord's sovereign hand in this judgment. And that's why Amos appealed to the Lord. And thinking about Amos's appeal, Oh Lord, please forgive. Are, are you not struck and amazed by Amos's love for the people of Israel? He's a, he's a shepherd and farmer from the south. And yet he loves his neighbors to the north. They're his brothers. And he was concerned about them. He knew that Jacob, which is just a synonym for the northern kingdom of Israel, could not survive this judgment. Amos intercedes for Israel. He prays to God on their behalf. He pleads that God would forgive and relent of this disaster. And in His mercy and grace, God does relent. It shall not be, says the Lord. And there, there are several obvious applications that we can draw out of this. First, the Lord answers prayer. The Lord is pleased to answer the prayers of His people. The Lord has ordained that He will work out His eternal will and purposes through prayer. In, in this life, we cannot see what God has planned. And it may be that He is pleased to work through answering our prayers to, to save the lost. Which, of course, leads to another point, an application from this text. We should learn from Amos' great compassion for the people of Israel. He does not want them to suffer the judgment and wrath of God. In fact, if you read through the Scriptures, you'll often notice this with godly men. Many of them have some knowledge of God's coming judgment, and they plead with God. They intercede on behalf of the condemned for mercy. Abraham interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah, and God saved some from that city. Moses interceded for the Israelites in the wilderness, and God did not utterly destroy them. And Amos intercedes on behalf of Israel here. Just as Amos 
Abraham and Moses had compassion on those who were under the threat of God's wrath, so should we. We should never be gleeful or joyful at the thought of someone suffering under the eternal wrath of God. That horrifying reality, though completely consistent with God's justice, should lead us to pray for those who do not know Jesus Christ. We should pray that God will be pleased to give them the gift of repentance and faith and so escape the wrath to come. Well, after one vision comes another in verses 4 through 6. Amos saw that the Lord was calling for a judgment by fire. The fire is set to devour the great deep and to eat up the land. And scholars are largely agreed here that the image appears to be one of a severe drought. The heat is so intense that there's such a lack of rainfall that the great deep or the waters of the land are are essentially drained. It seems to be confirmed by the image of the land being eaten up because of the lack of water, the land withers. Uh, It's eaten up through a drought. On this occasion, Amos intercedes again. Amos asks the Lord to stop. He ceases. He's asking for the Lord not to go through with this judgment. We can hear the desperation in Amos' cries. He cries, please, please, Lord. Just as he did with the previous vision. And just as the Lord did before in His mercy and grace, He relents. It shall not be. We have very little time to catch our breath, let alone breathe kind of a sigh of relief for the people of Israel before the next vision of judgment comes. We're hit with one vision after another after another. And this third vision, though it begins like the previous two, it ends quite differently. The previous two judgments centered around events or disasters. But this third vision centers around something of an object lesson or kind of an enacted parable. Uh, the, The change in the structure and nature of this vision alerts us to the fact that something incredibly important is going to happen. Amos is making a literary move so that we understand we need to focus in on this. The Lord asks Amos what he sees. And Amos answers simply a plumb line. Uh, a plumb line or a plumb bob. Oh, hold on, let's just see. Who know, raise your hand if you know what a plumb line is or a plumb bob is. All right, so most of you do. You're still going to get an explanation anyways, what it is. Um, a plumb line or a plumb bob, as they're, as they're often called. I almost called it a plumb blob, but it's a plumb bob. Uh, it's, it's simply a string uh, with a metal weight on the end of it. If you attach the string to kind of a point fixed above, uh, you can determine whether or not your wall is plumb, square, or straight. Uh, in other words, if you attach the string to a point, say, kind of an inch away, uh, from the wall at the top, then if the distance of the, uh, the weight at the bottom is an inch away from the wall, then your wall is square. If, however, the distance at the bottom varies from the distance at the top, then you know that your, plumb is, your wall is not plumb or square, or to put it crassly, that your wall is crooked and it needs to be adjusted. So what does this have to do with the people of Israel? Well, Israel is the wall that the Lord is setting his plumb line against. And, and this is, the, the question is this, is Israel straight or crooked? And what we know from the book of Amos so far is that without a doubt, Israel is crooked. Uh, what's more, we know that given the judgments that follow the Lord's statement, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people at Israel, that Israel, it's in fact crooked, that they are a wall that the Lord will have to tear down and rebuild. In this vision, the Lord is effectively asking Amos directly and personally, Amos, look, do you see what I see? Do you see, do you view Israel from my 
perspective. Do you see that Israel's crooked? That she's a wall that can't be racked back to square, but instead needs to be torn down. And, and this is why we don't have another prayer of intercession from Amos. Because he, he finally sees what the Lord sees. And in reading the text, I, I hope that your instincts as a reader are, are alerted to that kind of glaring omission. The, the reason for that glaring omission that Amos doesn't intercede for Israel is, as I said, is the Lord has finally shown Amos his perspective on Israel. And this is a unique perspective, too. This isn't something that we get in our daily lives. But we aren't given this unique supernatural revelation directly from Yahweh to a prophet concerning the future of a nation, let alone a person. We don't know who the Lord will judge and who He will save. That is not for us to know. We are simply to know our commission, which is to go and tell others the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone who will listen. We don't know whether or not the Lord will relent of His wrath and save our family member, friend, neighbor, or co-worker. So we should intercede for them, pray for them, and ask for the Lord to bring them to Christ. And our God is, is rich in mercy. And we should plead with Him to pour out His storehouse of grace for the glory of His name. Though we don't know God's sovereign will concerning who will be saved and who will not, there's one thing that we should long to grow in knowledge of. And that is God's perspective on sin. God does have a, a, a holy plumb line, a holy standard in His Word, against which our own crookedness and wickedness can be seen. We need to grow in our understanding of our sin from God's perspective, so that with Him, we can take His side against our sin. We need to grow in our understanding of the nature of our crookedness, so that we can better understand the nature of His overcoming grace. Amos, he finally saw what the Lord saw from the Lord's perspective. He saw Israel's crookedness. And we can see something of Israel's crookedness in the Lord's judgments too. The Lord says that He will never again pass by them. Which means that the Lord is telling Amos, Look, I've, I've passed by them in mercy before, just as you asked me to do on two previous occasions, but it's, it's not happening this time. Instead, this time, the Lord will pass through them in judgment. And in the wake of His wrath, He will make desolate the high places of Isaac. And here, the Lord is pointing out Israel's crookedness in worshiping other gods. Measured against the standard of God's law, Israel is shown to violate the first and the second of God's Ten Commandments. Not only that, but the Lord promises to lay waste the sanctuaries of Israel. The people of Israel have certainly failed to keep uh, keep the heart of the fourth commandment in their worship, thus revealing their crookedness. Finally, the Lord tells Amos that he will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. And notice how personal this is to the Lord. It's something that he will personally do. And that's because Israel has sinned against him. This reality that this is the Lord's prophecy and vision concerning his people is the central issue in the next section of chapter 7. Amos was told by God to go and to prophesy to Israel. But he is met by Amaziah, who tells him to go away. If you wanted to, you could, you could cast it as a good old-fashioned ancient Near Eastern standoff. Uh, who will ultimately leave Israel? Well, will Amos leave Israel or will Amaziah? Amos, maybe temporarily, 
But what we learn from this conversation is that Amaziah will leave Israel permanently. And with this in view, let's turn now and consider our second point, the question, who will go? Who will go? And as we do, read Amos chapter 7, verses 10 to 17 with me. Amos chapter 7, verses 10 to 17. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, and, and eat bread there, and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord God took me from following the flock, and the Lord God said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided up with a measuring line. You yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. Well, given Israel's spiritual state, it's not much of a surprise that Amos did not receive a warm reception. Uh, the first thing that the priest of Bethel does is to make sure that he sent word to the king of Israel about Amos. In his message, he, he labels Amos a conspirator. Amaziah must have been something of a kind of a higher up in the northern kingdom of Israel, for he has direct communication access to the king. And he seems to wield some authority, not simply over religious matters, but over political matters too. Amaziah is concerned about the conspiracy, as well as whether or not the people of the land can really bear or, or put up with Amos' message. To put it succinctly, Amaziah was a priest, a pollster, and a politician. And in his estimation, Amos, his preaching, was to be quashed. Um, we, we need to observe a, a few more things about Amaziah's rejection of Amos too. Amaziah's view that, of, of Amos, that he was a conspirator against the king, was undoubtedly a kind of a widely held view in Israel. After all, the land, he says, was not able to bear Amos' words. And that statement there in verse 10 uh, concerning Amos is, is not about physical land, but about the people of the land. And, and the effect, we need to see this, that the effect of unchecked sin upon hearing the word of God. We need to see its effect. Remember, all throughout this book, we've been seeing Israel's iniquities and sin. And here, we're seeing the effect of unchecked sin upon the hearing of God's word. Israel's pride, prosperity, and perversity has hardened her heart to the hearing of God's word. Sin has a hardening, blinding, and muffling effect. As we continue on in our sin, we, we protect ourselves against it less. And we build up our defenses to protect it more. And as we continue on in our sin, the more our vision is clouded 
to true righteousness. And the less our ears are tuned to hearing the truth. And, and what is interesting about Amaziah's report to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, is that he basically gets Amos' message right. By and large, he faithfully and accurately conveys the substance of Amos' message. But one thing is missing, or perhaps I should say one thing is misattributed. It is no doubt true that Amos has been speaking these words to the people of Israel. But Amos wasn't speaking on his own authority. Amos was speaking on God's authority. He was God's mouthpiece to the people of Israel. And so when Amaziah said, thus Amos has said, he got it wrong. This is, thus says the Lord. These were not merely Amos' words. For ultimately, they were God's words and visions. What was the opening refrain of, of those three visions that we just studied? Wasn't, it, wasn't the opening refrain, this is what the Lord God showed me. What this reveals is that Amaziah was ultimately serving man and not God. He was more concerned about what Jeroboam would think than what Jehovah would think. And, and if this is what the spiritual leadership of Israel was marked by, then there was little hope of them hearing and heeding God's word. If the chief spiritual leader in Israel was refusing to hear God speak through Amos, then there was little hope that the people of the land would hear God speak through Amos. Amaziah's own personal rejection of God's prophet resulted in, in personal rejection of the prophet himself. So in verse 12, Amos commands, sorry, Amaziah commands Amos to go away. Amos is no longer welcome at the place where he was proclaiming God's truth to God's people. And what Amaziah did not understand is that he was wishing the worst curse upon himself, his king, and his people. There is nothing worse than a famine of God's word. But that is exactly what he was asking for when Amaziah sent Amos away. Brothers and sisters, we should be very wary about dismissing those who lovingly speak God's word to us. Let's not refuse those who speak the truth to us in love. For in doing so, they are being bold and they're being loving. It is not unloving to tell another Christian that they have sinned. No, it is unloving to allow another brother or sister to continue on in their sin while you remain silent. Now, this doesn't mean that we get on our self-righteous high horse and pretend that we are free of sin and that everyone else is messed up. No, it means that we first take the log out of our own eye before we try to take the speck out of our brother or sister's eye. It means that even as we confront, lovingly confront, another brother or sister in their sin, we humbly confess that we ourselves are sinners. But what does this look like practically? It looks like saying, Dear brother, I've, I've noticed that for some time you've been struggling with this sin. And, and you need to turn away from that sin. And I, I know that this is not an easy thing. Because I too am a sinner. But I want you to know that I'm here to walk with you. To talk with you. To pray with you. And help you walk in victory over this sin. In any way that I can. Remember that Christ died for your sins and mine. And we need to help each other walk in the power of His resurrection. Never turn away a brother or sister who, in love, speaks God's word to you and points you to Jesus Christ. Children, youth, young adults, 
what, what makes a good friend? When you think about someone that you value as a friend, what things come to your mind? Someone who will laugh with you? Uh, someone who accepts you for who you are? Someone who can help you slip a few things by your parents? What, what makes a good friend? If, if you're following after Christ, your best friends will help you to fight sin. Not to love it and hold on to it. Now the world might call that person a goody two-shoes or a prude or a goody-goody. But they might in fact be a great friend. And I hope that when you look for characteristics that you want in friends, that you're looking for someone who loves Jesus Christ and who loves you enough to tell you the truth. This afternoon or this evening, let me encourage you to talk with your parents about this. Ask them, what, what makes a good friend? What should I be looking for in a friend? What characteristics should you be looking for in a good friend? Pray that that would be a good and helpful conversation to you. Well, after Amaziah tells the prophet Amos to go away, the focus of the scene shifts to Amos as he responds to Amaziah's dismissal. Amos begins his reply by aiming right at the heart of Amaziah's main assumption and contention. Remember that Amaziah considered Amos' message to be his own and not necessarily God's. In response, Amos makes clear that he is not, he's not a professional prophet. Look, this is not like his calling that he's followed his parents in. This is not his trade. And that this message is not his own, but it's God's message. In other words, he asserts the exact opposite of what Amaziah assumed. And he does it through explaining his biographical background. In verses 14 and 15, we're given the most kind of focused biographical content about Amos, the prophet uh, of this book, in the whole book. Uh, Amos, in the face of rejection, he tells Amaziah that he's been called by God to go and prophesy. And that this task of calling and speaking God's word to God's people was not his idea, was his family's trade. It's not something he was raised to do. He was raised to be a herdsman. He was a shepherd. And apparently, he was also a dresser of sycamore figs. Uh, sheep don't talk back, so Amos is not used to kind of making these grand speeches to people. Uh, figs certainly don't talk back either. So, you know, this is something completely new for Amos to venture out. And he ventures out, trusts God in faith. Uh, shepherds, they also didn't make a lot of money, so that Amos has this secondary trait of being a dresser of sycamore figs is, uh, is reasonable. Uh, he, he probably wasn't high up in the socioeconomic ladder, but he was obedient. Uh, he did not refuse God's call on his life. In contrast to Amaziah, who was serving man, there stood Amos, humbly, boldly serving God. Amos went where the Lord called him. He trusted God even in the face of this opposition and rejection. And the reality is that he could do no other. I mean, just look at the language of verse 15. He says, but the Lord took me from following the flock. It's powerful, forceful. He grabbed him and brought him into this ministry. And then the Lord's statement of go and prophesy to my people Israel. It's an equally forceful command. This is, as one commentator observed, shows how Amaziah and Yahweh stood on opposite sides of the question, where should Amos prophesy? Amaziah said, not here in Bethel. The Lord said, that's exactly where you should go. The Lord told Amos to go and prophesy to Israel there. Amaziah told Amos to go away. And this direct confrontation comes to a head in verses 16 and 17. 
Amaziah has told Amos he's to go away. But Amos tells Amaziah that ultimately, no, actually, you will go away. Ultimately, Amaziah will leave the land. Amos boldly delivers God's word, his indictment, conviction, and judgment on Amaziah. To make it clear that this is not his personal word of retribution, Amos begins this with his pronouncement with, Thus says the Lord. And there are several elements of the Lord's judgment that are aimed personally at Amaziah. That his wife will be a prostitute in the city. That his sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. That his land shall be divided up with a, a measuring line. Like people are going to come in and measure things out. Mm, this looks good. I'm going to have this plot right here. That's what's going to happen to Amaziah's land. He's not going to have any control over it anymore. And he's going to die in an unclean land. And all that Amos is saying is be true. The nation shall surely go into exile. The Lord's judgment is aimed at his marriage, his children, his possessions, his priesthood, and his nation. In other words, this is a comprehensive judgment on Amaziah. Everything that was precious to him, everything that he held dear would be met with God's judgment. His wife would become unfaithful, and so according to Leviticus 21.7, she would be the very kind of woman that priests were actually not to marry. With the death of his children, there would be no one to carry on his priestly line. He went through incredible efforts to remain clean according to the Levitical laws as a priest. And yet, in the end, when it was all said and done, he would die in an unclean land. And that's because he was unclean in the sight of the Lord. But what does this have to do with the overarching message of the book of Amos? That Israel will go into exile. Why focus in on this one man? Well, this man was a particularly important man in Israel. Priests were representative heads in Israel. They were to represent the people before God and to represent God before the people. And what is happening here is a kind of reverse representation. Uh, what would happen to Amaziah is representative of what would happen to Israel. His family would be devastated. He would be taken out of his home and land. This would happen on a much larger scale to the nation as a whole. This was the judgment that was coming, and this could not be avoided. As Amos, or really the Lord through Amos, said in verse 17, Israel shall surely go into exile. Amos' faithful, humble, and obedient example should challenge us. Will we humbly obey the Word of God? Will we answer Jesus' commands to go and make disciples? And will we say all the hard parts that God asks us to say. Did you notice what it was about Amos's message that really made Amaziah hot under the collar? It was that Israel was going to be judged. And if we're honest with ourselves in our own evangelism and our own telling of the good news, I think that we'll admit that the hardest part about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ is sharing the bad news first. It's hard for us to talk about our sin and the judgment that it deserves. It's hard for us to talk about the fact that a judgment against our sin is coming if we don't place our faith in Jesus Christ. But, but here's the thing, and here's, here's the irony of this difficulty for us. If there is no such thing as judgment, then there's no such thing as salvation. You have no good news, if there's not bad news, actually. What, what, what do we need to be saved from if we're not saved from God's judgment? 
What's the point of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ if everybody is automatically going to be just fine? Well, intuitively, we know that everything is not just fine. Intuitively, we know that we are all crooked next to God's plumb line. We know, it just by reflecting on the, the dark thoughts that sometimes slip into our minds, those, those thoughts that make us all go, whoa, whoa that, well, that was scary and, and wicked. Where, where did that thought come from? Well, we can't blame those thoughts on other people. Those are, those are our thoughts. We, we know that we're crooked by the, the rude and the mean and the crass things that we sometimes say. We can't blame other people for those words. Those are our words. They've come out of our mouths. And, and we, we know that we're sinfully crooked by the things that we sometimes do. Intuitively, we all know that we are crooked and in need of correction, of being set right. And only God, only God, the master carpenter, could do it. And who knew that he would do it through nailing his son to a piece of wood? This is the surprising reality of the good news of Jesus Christ. We're all crooked and warped pieces of wood. We've all sinned against God and we have violated His holy and perfect and just standard. And we are in danger of facing His just judgment of our sin. Of being exiled from His loving presence. But the good news of the Bible is this. That God sent His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to earth. Jesus, being fully man and fully God, lived the life that we have not lived. The life of perfect obedience to God the Father. If you took all of Jesus' thoughts, all of His words, all of His deeds, and lined them up with the plumb line of God's perfect law, they would fall directly in line. Jesus was never crooked. He never sinned. And yet... He gave up His life for sinners like you and me. Jesus was nailed to a cross of wood, taking all of our crookedness and sin upon Himself. He died bearing the punishment for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God vindicated Him by raising Him from the dead. By His resurrection, God the Father declared to the world that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners satisfied His divine justice. Now everyone who turns from their sin and places their faith in Jesus Christ will be made right in God's sight. God no longer views them as a crooked wall like Israel, deserving of judgment and destruction and exile. Instead, He views them as perfectly righteous and square with His law because Jesus was perfectly righteous and square with His law. This is good news. And friend, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to embrace Jesus Christ in faith today. Have His righteousness. Cling to Him in faith. And the reality is that you and I, we're crooked walls in God's sight and we need to be made righteous in God's sight. Otherwise, we risk being torn down and thrown into the eternal fire. So friend, turn from your sins. Come to Jesus Christ in faith today. Receive His righteousness. Receive eternal life. And receive peace with God. And if you want to know more about that, about what it means to be saved from judgment through faith in Jesus Christ, then please do come and find me at the door after the service. Or talk with a friend or family member that you came with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about than this good news. That through Jesus Christ, we may be made right and accepted in God's sight. 
we should conclude. You know, as I reflected on Amos chapter 7, the words of the song, O Church Arise, kept coming to my mind. It's a song actually on the insert in your bulletin. So if you wanted to pull that song out, uh, you'd be welcome to. It's entitled, O Church Arise. It's a song that we'll actually sing in just a few minutes. As I reflected on Amos's love and compassion toward Israel, calling out for God to relent and forgive, I was struck by the words of verse 2 there, the beginning there. Our call to war, to love the captive soul. Wasn't that precisely Amos' heart for the people of Israel? Didn't he love Israel, captive, enslaved to their sin? He wanted to see them set free. Wasn't he concerned for, for Israel's welfare? He, he went to Israel with nothing but God's word. And he had no guarantee that Israel would turn from her sin. It strikes me that our motivation for reaching the lost should be the same. Love. Love for them. Love for God. And our weapons of spiritual battle are no different than the weapons that Amos had at his disposal. Brothers and sisters, let's love the captive souls with God's word and with prayer. For those are the weapons that our faithful God has used in the past and will use again. Let's pray together.